Welcome to the 376th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thank you for listening. Well, I'm in taper. There's supposed to be a 50-mile race next weekend, but I have a toe update. So last week... I caught my little toe on the molding that comes out from the dishwasher, followed by a little stampede by a German shepherd that kind of brought me to my knee. And I have a running streak going on. So I kept running. You know, it was, my foot was swollen, and then the swelling gradually went down over the weekend, but my little toe has stayed swollen and very tender, tender to the point where putting a sock on, I have to do it very gingerly. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I didn't want to admit it, but today I decided to ultrasound myself. So for all those wondering what a cardiologist does with an echo machine when they're not doing cardiac echoes, you can ultrasound things. You can ultrasound and look for babies in your daughter, uh, and you can ultrasound people's aorta, and you can look at livers, you can ultrasound family's dogs if there's a problem, and you can ultrasound your own toes. And so I ultrasounded my own toe this afternoon and uh, saw a pretty nasty break that uh, wasn't very hard for me to pick up or my nurse to pick up or my secretary to diagnose. So as much as I would like to tough it out and uh, perhaps um, run with a broken toe and say I run with a broken toe, um, 16.7 mile loops times three in the middle of nowhere, getting cold and having to limp back and ruining both Michael and my races and not running like I would and be in misery. It's probably not the right thing to do. I can get four or five miles, which until today I have not broken my running streak. So it, last week of December through, uh, what is it now? February the 3rd. I have run every day, 4.3 miles today to be exact. Um, running on my, I hit forefoot, and those Newton shows um, tend to be pretty supportive. Actually, the Newtons are the only thing that I can wear comfortably running. And then it hurts a little bit worse afterwards. So I think I will be uh, stopping my running streak, and uh, I have um, bowed out of the 50-mile race. Michael has graciously agreed to bow out with me, and we'll defer to next year. And the, op- the goal will be to try to get better so that I can participate some way in the March 4th Treasure Coast Marathon. So if all goes well, uh, I'll be running that marathon. My next challenge is how to stay in good physical shape. I believe I'm in the best shape of my life right now. How to stay in good marathon shape despite not being able to put much weight on my right foot if I'm going to let it heal. So I'm going to see a podiatrist tomorrow and get some recommendations and um, at the suggestion of a friend who's a radiologist maybe get my toe straightened out because it's kind of bent it's not really aligned very well right now so we'll see what uh, an orthopedic uh, person or a podiatrist has to say tomorrow and go from there hopefully I can swim maybe with a boot I can do some weight training so it'll be a whole new episode of podcasts on my updates on my toes and how I stay in shape while my toe is healing. It's really aggravating that something so small can cause me such grief. 
but um, it, it's doing it pretty good right now. Um, again, Gretchen stepped on me. Sophie, it's, uh, I'm wearing, I finally relented to wearing shoes around the house because some four-footed furry friend is always nailing that little toe that apparently sticks out like a giant baseball bat. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, I thought it was getting better. I thought the discomfort was getting a little bit better, but not really. Um, I did soak it, and that took the swelling out, so that's good. Um, but anyway, there's it. I've been taking some turmeric to try to take the inflammation out. And there, there you have it. We had a freeze here in Florida while I was uh, taking the Diva. I guess the next thing I should update, uh, we, did, we had a very successful trip, if you follow us on Facebook, to Houston to see the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors, play the Houston Rockets, and Steph Curry had a stellar of an evening, scoring the most points he, I think he had in a long time in the fourth quarter. So the Diva really enjoyed the basketball game, as did Caleb and Nathan and Addie and Michael and myself. So we had a great weekend in Houston with um, my family and uh, enjoyed some Greek food and some of Addie's good cooking and uh, the trip to the watch the Warriors play. So that was, that was really, really fun. So we're back here now. And um, we had a freeze while it was gone, and tomato plants covered them all up for I'm gone. Mango trees, most of them I seem to be okay. Uh, a couple of them uh, may have had some significant frost damage. We'll have to see, but nothing too awful bad. Um, I know for you all up north, that's uh, not too impressive um, to have a couple hours at 29 degrees. Uh, I hope everybody's safe. There's a big storm coming as I speak to much of the north, northern United States, so I hope all of you stay safe. This is the beginning of heart month, so I, it's only fitting that a cardiologist talk a little bit about hearts. Um, but before I get started, uh, you all have had, uh, most of you have heard me have Nanette Rogers on the podcast, who is 86 years old, young. She completed a 13.1-mile marathon, half marathon last week at 30 degrees Fahrenheit in Florida. And she let me quote her. I wanted to say, um, and at one of the things she said, at the start, I felt strong the entire 13.1 miles, 86-year-old. Hand warmers under my gloves and other warm gear made an enjoyable race for me. We had a delicious whole food plant-based meal right after the race. She looks wonderful in her post-race pictures like she never ran a mile. So do you doubt that plant-based nutrition makes a difference when it comes to longevity and health? I am quite sure it makes a difference. There was a recent study done at the university, I'm sorry, Brown University by Charles Eaton that looked at walking pace in older women. And they looked at whether women walked a fast pace for an hour um, versus um, a you know, slower casual walk for a longer period of time. And they actually looked at heart failure. And the faster people walked, there was actually a 34%. The fastest group had a 34% decrease in heart failure uh, overall. There were 25,183 postmenopausal women from the Women's Health Study. They followed them for 16.9 years. Uh, there were 1,400-plus heart failure episodes. They defined casual walking at three miles per hour and then fast walking or, or as casual walking. Faster than that was defined as fast walking, four miles an hour, and then two miles an hour being slow, um, like a slow walk. 
And uh, again, what they found was that walking speed actually um, helps you to um, get more cardiovascular benefit from it. So if you're using steps to define your exercise for the day and it's steps around the house, uh, it does help and it keeps you from sitting. But if you really want to get um, a lot of bang for your standing up moving time, then get out and at least um, for an hour a week um, on top of that regular walking that you're doing, the slow pace, or pick it up during your walks for five or ten minutes intervals, uh, you can get a lot of bang for your buck. So um, I would encourage everybody to get out there. Given that it's heart um, month, I just wanted to also go through things that I've been through before um, as a traditional cardiologist when um, I get referred a patient from a primary care, often it's because of an abnormal electrocardiogram or perhaps an abnormal stress test. Back in the day when time wasn't a factor as far as offices go, physicians did stress tests. And the idea behind a stress test was to actually stress you. So the Bruce protocol was invented to see how far somebody could go, how much cardiovascular fitness that they had, and did they have symptoms of chest pain, shortness of breath, rhythm problems, blood pressure, heart rate. If there were EKG symptoms, that could be correlated with how long a person walked, the blood pressure, the heart rate, uh, to give a prognosis. So for instance, if somebody could go 10 minutes on a Bruce protocol, it was the equivalent of being able to shovel snow. That's very relevant in this time when the snowstorm's coming. On the other hand, if they could only go three minutes, that was suggestive that they start to get problems with things like making the bed or minor household chores. So it was a good prognosis. But again, things have changed. So a lot of times technicians do the stress test. The idea is to get how many people you can get through the stress lab in a day. So they stop the treadmill when people achieve 85% of their predicted maximum heart rate. So that's 220 minus their age is a rough estimate of your maximum heart rate. So as we age, the ability for us to achieve a maximal heart rate decreases. That is because the sinus node in the top chamber of the heart, which starts the, the heartbeat, starts to decline over the ages. And so we cannot achieve a high heart rate. And so somebody comes and tells me that, you know, they're 75 years old and they had a heart rate of 170. That's very concerning for me if it's true, because that's not a normal sinus rhythm. That is definitely going to be an abnormal rhythm for them. So anyway, um, they typically stop at 85%. And at 85%, that is the point where metabolism goes from being aerobic using oxygen to anaerobic not using oxygen. So it becomes a cardi carbohydrate burning exercise once you're above 85% of your predicted maximum heart rate. And it's also the point where, um, again, there's a significant amount of stress going on. It's not 100%, but it is uh, significant. So when you pair that with a nuclear imaging modality, then it's fairly accurate if it's normal that probably nothing's going on, but if it's abnormal, certainly something's going on. This, the ability to pick up blockages when you stop it before somebody has symptoms or completely fatigued 
goes down. So the sensitivity goes down. Certainly if somebody has uh, an abnormal EKG at three minutes or there's abnormal perfusion at, that's significant at three minutes, then that means something. But if everything's normal and the stress test was stopped before the patient was tired, then all bets are off. So a lot of times there'll be an abnormal stress test at a lower heart rate and you're not sure what to do with it. So most, most of the time a cardiologist will say, well, we need to do a heart catheterization to look at the blood vessels, which is the gold standard. Today there's also CT angiography where a CT scan or a CAT scan can be done to look at blood vessels. There's a calcium score that look at the calcium in the blood vessels. Neither one of these are the gold standard per se, standard per se. So they can give an estimate, but they aren't the gold standard. A nuclear stress test gives a person radiation. A catheterization gives a person radiation. A CT calcium score, a CT angio gives people significant radiation. A catheterization gives people significant radiation. To do it just to do it is certainly... Um, not a good use of the limited amount of radiation that you would like to expose yourself to or the funds necessary. Again, if people have a low probability of, of a problem, um, you're taking more risk in doing a procedure than you are going to get benefit. Like cardiac catheterization carries the risk of stroke, heart attack, or death at a rate of about 1%. There's other risks that are a little bit more, bleeding, bruising, vascular damage. Those are all possibilities. Um, in somebody that does a lot. It's rare, but it happens. The only risk of a CT angio, there's a risk of contrast on kidneys. So if somebody has impaired kidney function, it can make that worse. If somebody has diabetes, both the contrast with a CT angio and the cardiac catheterization is a risk to further damage their kidneys. So it's not something you want to do um, just out of the blue. When we start to risk stratify people just because we can, because they have risk factors. So if somebody's a diabetic and they're 55 years old and they come into the office and their EKG is a little abnormal, especially if the EKG was read by a computer and you refer them for a stress test or a CT scan, you can see how we can go down a rabbit hole of different tests. If you're over 50 years of age, there's a good chance that you could have some disease in your coronary arteries. There could even be a uh, chance that you could have a 60, 70% blockage. What do we do about that? We know that um, by multiple studies, putting a stent in someone that's not having any symptoms will not make them live a day longer or a day better. If you're not having any symptoms, you can't live any better. It won't prolong your life. If you're having an acute heart attack, a stent is life-saving. Um, coronary bypass surgery, same way. In the presence of a normal heart function and no symptoms, it probably is not going to make you live longer. And there's a significant chance something could go wrong, stroke, heart attack, or death during the procedure. So it's not something to be done electively because your pictures are ugly. We have another alternative called plant-based nutrition. Plant-based nutrition is founded upon the ability of plants to be able to, to work with the bacteria in our mouth and our digestive enzymes to produce nitric oxide, particularly the greens, as well as beets and cauliflower. We eat those, we produce nitric oxide, our blood vessels dilate, our collateral blood vessels start to dilate. Those are the little vessels between the big vessels, so the side streets, so to speak, that open up. So by eating greens, you get a 15 and a 20 minute 
30-minute rise in nitric oxide that gradually goes down in your blood. So repeated dosing of greens throughout the day can actually cause your blood vessels to dilate and improve blood flow. On the other hand, if you continue to eat things that cause inflammation and oxidation, um, smoke, eat meat, it blocks the production of nitric oxide. So you can eat all the greens in the world, but then if you eat a crappy diet on the top of it, you're not going to get anywhere. So if you want to reverse something that's already far along, you've got to make a pretty, pretty good effort at it. But we've seen people time and time again that have had chest pain just walking 25 yards for all of a sudden it goes away. But you have to be diligent and you have to treat the food as your medicine and not in a cavalier once in a while on occasion in addition to other things. But I say that at this time of year because a lot of people think that by doing these tests, if they get a normal result, then that gives them a clean bill of health and they're still healthy and they can continue to go on with their life as they want without making any change. And we know that's most likely not true. Um, you weren't born with coronary artery disease, yet if we start to look at ages 50 years, 50 to 55, people you know, start to have about a 50% chance of blockages. Over 60, it goes up you know, around 60%. I mean, it's 70. You know, so if you look at an 80-year-old and you do a heart cath on an 80-year-old, the chances of you finding some abnormalities is pretty high. Whether that kills them or not, it's a different, different story. And if you look at the admissions to the hospital, most acute myocardial infarctions, the big ones, occur, and again, like I said a couple weeks ago, in the younger age group. So being it's heart month, it's not necessarily the time to go out and run out and get one of these tests that give you radiation because what you would do if you came to my office with one of these abnormal tests, I would say that you need to change your diet and your lifestyle. Regardless of whether or not you had an abnormal test or not. So a normal test, I'd say you need to be plant-based, exercise, eat right. If your stress test is abnormal, I say you need to exercise, eat right, um, and eat plant-based and avoid oil. I think you should do a test when it's going to change what you do. Um, if somebody, you know, is pretty confident that if they have an abnormal stress test, they'll change their ways, um, and that's what they need to make them do something different, then great. Um, most of the time I find that's not the case. Usually a clean bill of health gives you permission to keep doing what you're doing. For example, I have put off looking into my little toe because I did not want to know the answer. Um, I had a hunch that it was broken uh, because it stayed swollen for a week, but I really didn't want to know the answer. I kept telling myself that when I ran in the morning that it was getting somewhat better. The swelling was going down, but it still um, was pretty swollen and pretty tender to touch. By doing the ultrasound and seeing the fracture, I knew that I can't run 50 miles without doing, or at least the risk of doing significant more damage to my toe. I'd rather live to run another day. So it made a difference in what I do based on what I found. If the, ex if the ultrasound had been normal and it just looked bruised, then I would certainly keep doing what I'm doing. Anybody can run with a soft tissue injury, as I said last week.
but as far as testing goes, that's the whole rabbit hill, rabbit hole that we often go down, and we find ourselves way down the hole before we think about why did I ever have this test done. If it's not going to change what you do, it's not going to make you live longer, live better, or change your course of treatment or life, then be careful for what you look for. A bad diagnosis in a very elderly person can make them give up um, and feel like that all hope is lost. You know, a lot of times people hear about the first sentence of a diagnosis or a first sentence of discussion. And so when something abnormal comes up, they, they latch on to that first sentence, the test is abnormal, it's over, this is the beginning of the end, and they go down a, a, a rabbit hole of no return. The other thing that can happen is you go down a rabbit hole where you get more tests and the tests actually cause injury. So if you're going to get an MRI, you have to know that they're going to last a while. You're going to be in a cold environment. You're going to be in a setting where you're going to be right now exposed to people that may or may not have COVID. So the risk of exposure may go up if you're, at, if you're an at-risk population. You're going to be on a table. It may make your pain worse. So you have to take all those factors into consideration. What would you do with the result? If you would never do anything with the result, then just looking can make this diagnosis just hover over your head and feel bad. On the other hand, if you feel good, it's hard to make you feel better. I also think what we do to people of different ages matter. So not all tests that may be benign in a 20-year-old or a 40-year-old may not be nearly as, uh, it may be much more risky in an 80-year-old. The risk of local anesthesia is much greater in an older person. We are slowing their brain down so that they can't feel. We've got to turn that circuit back on. There's a risk of decreased oxygen to their brain while the procedure is being done. There's a risk of stroke, rhythm problems, pneumonia, aspiration, all of things that is difficult to, are difficult to recover from the older that you get. So it's not the same. A colonoscopy in a 90-year-old is not the same as a colonoscopy in a 50-year-old. There's always going to be some risk, but the older we get, the more friable our tissues, the weaker our immune system is, the weaker our gag reflexes is, the more risky a test is. What happens if it's just a blood test and there's no risk at all? Should we have it done? I, it's different for everybody. You need to know what you're going to do with the results. If you have a test for the BRCA gene for breast cancer, are you okay with Waiting, watching, what will be your outcome? Will you have a bilateral mastectomy, uh, your ovaries out, and yearly CT surveillance and have this hanging over your head? Or will you try to live a healthy lifestyle? Will you live a healthy lifestyle anyway? Um, if you have ApoE4 gene and you have an increase of risk of Alzheimer's, would you undergo an experimental therapy that may or may not help you? Um, you know, every time you forget your car keys, are you going to, you know, become more depressed because you think it's starting? You know, what will you do with the answer? If you have the diagnosis of abnormal DNA in your blood, which is a test that can be performed now, that may delineate that you may have breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, but there's no tumor, what would you do with the result?
If you can't see it, what can you do with it? If it's already in your blood, you have to presume that it's spread from that or, or, uh, organ of origin, and it's now into your bloodstream. It's in the stem cells. So what do you do with the result? We don't know what to do with some of those results, and it certainly will be different for different people. And how will that psychologically affect you, and what, what might you do differently? So can you look at your own diet and see places where you could make a difference? And I always tell people, look at the places where it's not painful. If you're cooking with oil right now, I don't care what study out there says that olive oil might be beneficial versus butter. There's no need to cook with olive oil. It does not change the flavor of food. It does add calories. It does add fat. It can increase your cholesterol. It can increase inflammation. It does nothing to help you. So if you could eliminate 200 calories, 500 calories of cooking oil a day, why wouldn't you? doesn't make a difference. It's not going to affect your life negatively. It's not like you've got to give up something that you're really looking forward and enjoy. So that's a great, great place to start. When you, you know, um, I, I tell the story about, you know, giving up oil and added benefits. Not only does it decrease inflammation, people's joints don't hurt as much. So even if you live longer, but your joints hurt because you're inflamed, is it worth it? Indigestion goes away. Gastroesophageal reflux goes away when you, when you eliminate oil and dairy from your diet. So even if your cardiovascular disease is not as bad as it would be with butter, but you still have indigestion and you still have to take medications that will increase your risk of heart attack and osteoporosis, would you still want to do it? Those are the things that you need to think about. So the simple things first. So eliminating oil is really the, the simplest thing. Um, but it's in everything. You have to look. So when you look on the back of the package and you see, you know, various oils in various location in the ingredients list, it's a no-no. Um, if you look at the nutrition label and there's calories and then there's grams of fat, grams of fat times nine gives you the proportion of calories from fat. So if a dressing has 80 calories and there are nine grams of fat, nine times nine is well, I'd have to have it more than calories than that, but it's say it has seven grams of fat, seven, seven times nine, that is the percentage out of 90 or 80 that, that would be the, calorie, the fat calories. It seems that seven or eight grams of fat is not much until you look at the percentage of calories that come from fat in a particular food. Pasta sauces go way up in calories because of the calories from fat. And people don't even notice it because they slip that oil right in the back. It improves shelf life. It makes the, the pasta sauce stick to the spaghetti a little bit better. You know, it makes it, you know, taste a little bit heartier. So how bad could it be? I'm not eating meat. I'm just having some marinara sauce with some olive oil. And olive oil is supposed to be good. So we justify all these things in our mind, but it's not helping us. So by, you know, looking, looking for the simple things first then we can not only decrease energy, but decrease inflammation in our diet. You know, obviously the big ones are eliminating meat. Um, you know, a lot of people start nitpicking what they call meat. People don't realize fish is an animal. Um, it's meat. It's a muscle um, which contains cholesterol. We don't look to see, you know, we turn a blind eye on eggs that are in pastries or in, that are in things. Um, I was fooled last weekend um, at the grocery store at Sprouts. I was going to get some fig bars to take on the airplane. 
and there was an apple fig bar at Sprouts, and it was right by the Bobos, who is, which is pretty low in, in fat. And I said, oh, I'll try these. They're made by Sprouts or a fig bar. Get them to the house, and lo and behold, I didn't look close. I assumed because they were on that row that they'd be okay, and they had milk in them. So, you know, gone were those, those bars. So, you know, even seasoned plant-based eaters make mistakes because we like to assume that if something's with something or it's on a particular shelf or we just get lazy or you just can't see, it's not the light, you don't have your cheaters, you just assume we get into trouble. And then you say, oh, what the heck? And then the next thing is like, oh, if I did that, well, I can do this. Um, and we just start to, you know, look at other things. Um, of course, the other thing is snacking in the evening. When people start, they have the wants, you know, I just need a little something. And if we don't put parameters around what that little something might be, it could be a lot of little somethings. But will that little something contain oil, fat, eggs, excessive calories, calorie dense? What will it be? You know that fruit is always a good option. Um, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. You're going to have antioxidants, phytonutrients. You're going to be able to absorb a good. There's going to be fiber. That's always a good way to go around. But, you know, uh, people, you know, I just need something sweet. And they're not thinking of the sweetness of fruit. We often make justifications by saying that we gave up one thing, so therefore we deserve another and, you know, I, I think you have to be careful because that can come back and bite you. I posted, um, and I think I actually posted on our own uh, member's website, but I'll, I'll, I'll link it to the show notes of a really good short video that an ultra runner posted of a woman that ran her first 100 miler. And it was awesome. She was diagnosed with breast cancer at an early age, and she had been a runner, and she gradually increased, and she ran a 100-mile race. And one of the quotes that she put in there was, I've done everything I could do. Um, and she was, an ex she was an avid exerciser before she got breast cancer, and of course she continued to run right after she finished her chemo and radiation. She went back to running and ran a 100-mile race. But... There was also a mention of eating cheese pizza and other desserts, and she was overweight. So it was fabulous that she had the determination and will, and it was a great story, and she seems like a great person that she kept running, and she was determined and ran this 100-mile race. And we know that exercise really does well to decrease the recurrence of breast cancer. But she has, two more, she has two more avenues that she needs to address. She needs to address her weight, and she needs to address her nutrition. Because we know that normalizing your body mass index is going to do a whole lot more to decrease the risk of recurrence. And eating a plant-based nutrition, a plant-based diet, as well as eliminating dairy, particularly and animal products, will go even further to decrease her risk of recurrence. I don't know if she was informed of that. Most likely she was not. Hopefully she will evolve to that. But I really, uh, you know, when I saw that, it's like it's a shame that somebody uh, in her medical team did not bring that up. But it's often the case that um, it's just too hard to make those changes. It was hard enough to undergo the surgery and the radiation. That was very, very difficult raising a young son 
and then to keep running and train for a marathon was very, or a hundred mile race. That was very difficult. And so, you know, you do what you can, but again, keep looking at the possibilities of what nutrition can do to help and normalizing your body mass index can do to help. It is true that you can help. And the other thing is with breast cancer, and I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because it is heart month. Women that have had breast cancer have an increased risk of dying of cardiovascular disease. So even if their breast cancer doesn't come back, they have an increased risk of mortality from cardiovascular disease. Screening is not the answer for cardiovascular disease. It's lifestyle modification is the answer to decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease in everyone, but it particularly in women with breast cancer that have an increased risk. So normalization of body mass index, changing the nutrition will also not only decrease the risk of breast cancer, but decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease. It's a win-win situation. The last thing I want to address today is how do you treat pain? Um, my toe hurts, um, but it doesn't hurt bad enough to take anything. I'm taking some turmeric when I can remember so I can decrease the inflammation a little bit perhaps. Um, if you have an acute injury to decrease the swelling, you can ice it. That constricts the blood vessels. But after that, you actually want to have some blood flow and increase the blood flow to extremity, especially if you're older because you want to get good blood flow to that tissue to try to heal it. So ice is not your best friend then. So I would say go ice right up front, and then you're going to go heat. Turmeric, anti-inflammatory. Um, it has the same anti-inflammatory benefits of an ibuprofen or a naproxen or a Vioxx, but it doesn't have the cardiovascular side effects. I actually soaked my foot, made it feel better, decreased the swelling perhaps. Um, if pain is really bad, you can do Tylenol 500 to 1,000 every six hours. It is metabolized by the liver. It is not a benign drug. You cannot take it all that you want. You have to take it according to the directions or you, you run the risk of liver failure, which is a bad thing. Ibuprofen is a wonderful musculoskeletal bony pain reliever. Ibuprofen, nap, Naproxen, Aleve, Advil, Vioxx, Celebrex, they're all in the same categories. However, they're metabolized by the, the kidney and somewhat by the liver, and they can cause a tu acute tubular necrosis in some people that lead to kidney failure. It's worse if the people are dehydrated. It's worse if you're an endurance athlete and you're taking them on an, during an event uh, because you're somewhat dehydrated and the risk of kidney damage and GI bleeding is increased, uh, both in the stomach and the colon. It decreases the production of nitric oxide. So in a dehydrated state, decreased nitric oxide increases the risk of uh, heart attack. It's a terrible choice if you already have GI, uh, a GI disorder, uh, such as a history of gastric ulcers or stomach pain. Uh, it can increase your risk of bleeding. If you're on other blood thinners, it will increase your risk of bleeding more. In the case of endurance athlete, it can also contribute to a kidney uh, ailment, uh, which leads to hyponatremia. Um, runners typically drink fluids that have more water than salt, and the non-steroidals will um, cause a decrease in the resorption of salt from the kidneys, and you can get more hyponatremia, which can be fatal. 
non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs also increase the risk of tendon rupture. So if you have tendonitis and you take ibuprofen or one of those medications, you can increase the risk of rupture. So um, live to run another day, um, do the things that won't hurt you, but avoid the things that will hurt you. The last thing are opioids. Um, people say that I don't have an addictive personality, but it doesn't really matter. These things work on your brain. Um, other than in somebody that has cancer, I say avoid them like the plague. Um, somebody might need one post-operatively uh, for a short period of time, maybe a day, but transition off of those as quickly as possible. Um, the risk, you know, for addiction, for uh, delayed uh, gut motility is there. So you have to be really careful. Um, you know, even if you're not addicted, your stomach can shut down. You can get an alias. Uh, you can get uh, GI distress from that. So um, avoid those things when, whenever possible. So on that note, I'm going to go put my foot in the air and uh, try to keep Gretchen and Sophie from stepping on it some more. And I'll keep you updated on my progress. And uh, maybe I'll even post a little picture of my toe. Who knows? But thank you for listening. I'm sorry that I'm not going to be able to get a race report into you all next week. I'm very, very disappointed. Um, I can't believe, you know, stupid human tricks happen to us all, I guess. But um, very, very disappointing. But I'll live to run another day. And um, hopefully I'll learn from it. And maybe I'll get stronger by doing cross training. Who knows? Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.